So good afternoon and uh, very warm welcome back to Oxford for those of you that have come back. And uh, thank you for coming uh, to my talk. Uh, a lot of my colleagues are giving extremely interesting lectures at the same time. So I'm grateful that you've chosen this one. I think there's no more important topic than this. Uh, I, I, would, <laughs> I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, but I do think that we are at a crossroads uh, in terms of the future of humanity uh, and that the outcome will depend on the ability of people to act collectively and particularly for countries. Is my mic not on? Yeah, all right, okay. I, I'll get to who I am, don't worry. Um, Uh, so, this issue of coordination, of getting governments to work together uh, is one which uh, has been troubling me for a long time, and so I did this book, Divided Nations, uh, which is really designed not as an academic book, it's my first attempt uh, to reach a wider audience. So if you read it and uh, can't understand it, do send me an email. Uh, and complain uh, because uh, I would have failed uh, in that. Um, okay, um, can, th there will be an opportunity when I finish uh, for questions and answers and can I ask you to hold your comments and questions to the end and uh, I think the others would prefer that as well. Uh, so the reason uh, I've come to this conclusion uh, is from a variety of different uh, perspectives that come both from my own personal working past uh, and from that of the Oxford Martin School, which I direct. So I think you all know that my name is Ian Golden, um, that I am the director of the school, which for many of you will be news uh, because it was a creation of about six years ago from Dr. James Martin, uh, who was, of course, an alumni of Oxford from the early 50s, uh, who has given the university $150 million uh, to um, create this, what I think is just quite extraordinary, wonderful new addition to Oxford, and this is the most generous benefaction uh, that Oxford has received. The purpose of the school is to bring great people together to work in interdisciplinary teams, on the biggest challenges facing the future. And we now have about 350 people, researchers ranging from professors uh, to postdocs. It's all graduate, it's all research, working in about 34 different teams focused on these critical issues. Very wide ranging, from new cures for cancer and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, uh, public health, <coughs> pandemics, aging, economics, Cybersecurity. We've just been awarded by the UK government the new Cybersecurity Capacity Building Centre. Um, so it's extremely wide-ranging. We have people from 26 different disciplines. All of the teams are interdisciplinary in nature, uh, and that's our really our uniqueness. There are four criteria for membership, and it's extremely competitive entry. About 10% of the people that apply get in. Uh, the criteria are that these teams have to demonstrate they're working on an issue which will change the future of the world, scale. They have to demonstrate excellence, that they're the best in the world at what we do, and that we think of as the Oxford test. Um, the third is they have to demonstrate that their work will have an impact over about the next 10 years or so. So we're not looking for ivory tower, sort of down the road Nobel Prize winners, although we have some of those. Uh, we're looking for people that can translate ideas into action. Uh, and the fourth criteria is they have to prove why well, they couldn't do this unless they were in the school, value added. Uh, and that's all about the interdisciplinary. There's lots of funding bodies out there. There's lots of people working on cures for cancer or Alzheimer's uh, or demography or migration or economics. The question is why can you only do what you want to do by being part of that? And this is about interdisciplinarity, it's about experimentation, it's very exciting. Now the connection of my day job, to, which is being the dean of this group uh, of academics, to uh, this book is that we work on many, many issues 
of global significance. About 50 people working on the environment, biodiversity, and climate change. People working on trying to stop the next financial crisis. People working on trying to stop pandemics. People working <coughs> on cybersecurity. A very group, big group, probably the biggest in the world now, about 40 people working on migration. Uh, and as we look across these different areas, um, we actually think that we know quite a bit, that we have many ideas that would be helpful. Uh, the problem is we don't have many people to talk to. Um, and this disconnect between knowledge and action, and particularly at the global level, uh, this inability of nations to come together to collectively problem solve uh, is troubling us. Uh, so we actually don't think it's a dearth of ideas, although obviously we are trying to generate better and better ideas, uh, but we think it's really, in the end, a problem of politics or the translation of the ideas and articulation of the ideas into action. Uh, that is the critical factor, which is very worrying. Um, now, this builds on... Uh, I'm, I'm actually not uh, a lifelong academic. I've only been at Oxford seven years and a professor here for seven years. I had lots of previous lives. In my previous life, I was vice president of the World Bank, and before that, I was economic advisor to President Mandela, um, and so on. Uh, so I've been in these negotiations. I've been uh, in the world of trying to make things happen at the national and global level, uh, and felt similarly frustrated from that. So coming to Oxford and discovering uh, these extraordinary range of people with brilliant ideas uh, led me to even greater levels of frustration. And that's really why I wrote the book, because I wanted to raise awareness about this urgency. So the book um, focuses on a wide range of issues on global governance. And I should stress that I'm an economist and come from a finance background. So I'm not an international relations person. Uh, this is not an area that I've sort of been working on. Uh, in a theoretical, conceptual way, uh, but I've tried to learn. Um, <clears throat> I go through five examples of where I think there's a big gap and gridlock in global governance. These are not uh, examples which I've selected because I think they're the most important uh, or certainly not exclusively the issues we need to worry about. But they're five examples where I feel the nature of the world has changed in rather fundamental ways over the last 20 years. And there's been a widening disconnect between the issues and the capacity uh, to resolve them. So that's really uh, the, the selection criteria. There are many issues, like nuclear uh, threats, like poverty, uh, that I don't talk about. But the issues I do talk about are finance, because that's the one I understand best, um, migration, which was the subject of my previous book, cybersecurity, climate change, and pandemics. Those are the five almost randomly selected issues, but the, one could add, certainly, uh, to that list. And as I say, those are the reasons I have selected. I wanted to think about issues which weren't exhaustively talked about in this context as well. Now, finance is uh, very perplexing because it is an incredibly well-run system. It's by far the most sophisticated at the national and global level of all the systems of management. And if you think about the UK and you think about the different government departments and different capacity across government, and you think about um, the Treasury and the Bank of England, that's basically the story at the national level in all countries, all countries finance ministries, treasuries, uh, central banks get the best people, they have the best data, they pay the best. Our brightest graduates from places like Oxford go to the treasury rather than to some other government department. Um, and of course they print the money, so there's no shortage of resources uh, and allocate the budgets. Uh, this is true at the national level, uh, very powerful institutions, but it's certainly true at the global level as well. Um, something like 15,000 people apply for every five positions at the IMF. Uh, so these are highly competitive uh, institutions, 
uh, in terms of entry. Uh, and um, again, they tax-free, good salaries, uh, and they're very powerful institutions. They have all the data they need. Uh, there's just an abundance, maybe, and we can come back to that, this data deluge. Uh, and one of the problems of the financial crisis was how do people drink from the fire hydrant of information. Um, and they very joined up. So all the central bank governors and finance ministers of the world, for example, once a year play golf together and have a retreat at Jackson Hole. Um, so this is not a, a group of un-global people in terms of the, how connected they are, lack of knowledge, uh, lack of skill. This is an extremely smart, joined up, data-rich group of people. Uh, and so the question, the obvious question is, uh, why did they let the financial crisis happen? Um, remember that the purpose, the central purpose of these global institutions, certainly the IMF mandate, is global financial stability and crisis prevention. That's its mandate. Um, and I was in Washington. Uh, I was part of this uh, collective. 20,000 PhDs uh, at the global level and um, many hundreds of thousands more at the national level uh, with, their, with their various articulations. And I was um, very struck by uh, a comment that Hank Paulson made uh, at the Congressional Committee investigating the financial crisis. Uh, Hank had been the CEO of Goldman Sachs. So although many of us had reservations about the CEO of a major bank uh, becoming the Treasury Secretary because of the conflicts of interest between Wall Street uh, and Washington, uh, we all thought there must be a silver lining, which he'd understand banking. Um, so he says in his congressional uh, testimony as to why they let Lehman Brothers go, um, that we just did not know what was happening. Uh, and, and this is part of the problem. Uh, part of the problem is an absolute failure uh, in an intellectual sense, in a conceptual sense, to understand the way that the world has changed uh, in very fundamental ways over the last 20 years. Globalization uh, has been the most remarkable force for good in the history of humanity. And by globalization, I mean integration. I mean openness. I mean connectivity. And I've written a book, Globalization for Development, which is about this. It has allowed more people to escape poverty than ever in history, and it's allowed all of us to have a better expectation of our future lives than any of our previous generations. Healthier, longer lives for more people. And there are many, many other indicators that one can look at of progress. There's some which have gone back, not least the environmental ones. But it has led to a fundamental change in the way that the global system operates. It is hyper-connected. It's integrated in ways that were not understood by these slow-moving institutional structures. And on top of that, there's a pace of technological change, which partly arises out of globalization. So I, I write about the speed at which technology is changing as being a result of this integration, openness, and education. But this technological change was not understood. The thing about finance, which is disturbing, is that although this was the biggest and most terrible crisis we could imagine happening, uh, we would not wish a bigger crisis, uh, it has not resulted in any fundamental changes uh, in the management of the global financial system. Indeed, I believe there's probably a higher probability of another financial crisis now uh, than before the reforms, which have been half-hearted, ineffective, and sometimes counterproductive in recent years. So the question is, why is it that after the Second World War, uh, you got Phoenix-like this institutional reform with the Bretton Woods institutions, with the United Nations, with many other institutions created to stop another war, and successfully so, um, and yet after the financial crisis, haven't we had fundamental financial reform? There was a flash in the pan. There was the G20 meeting in 2000. And nine, uh, 
which held promise, and many of us had been pushing for a G20 for a long time. Um, it happened, but that's dissipated. And if you looked at the latest G20 um, in St. Petersburg, uh, I think, um, well, my view of this is this has become like the G7. This is just a photo opportunity traveling circus um, for domestic, playing to domestic audiences. Very little substantive comes out of these in terms of the key things that need to happen uh, in order to change finance or anything else, what's happening in Syria uh, or anything else. So the transmission of a crisis into an opportunity for reform appears to be weak at best, uh, which is worrying. And so I think about finance and think about how reforms could happen, uh, what is necessary uh, in that, and then try and look at the implications as well for other systems. Now, pandemics uh, are like finance in one respect, which is globalization and integration have led to this hyperconnectivity and density of people. Uh, so that we, in our pandemics group, run by a, um, a brilliant woman who's at All Souls, Angela McLean, uh, have modeled the spread, for example, of the swine flu from Mexico City uh, to 130 countries in about three weeks, exactly replicating airline uh, traffic and, and people movement uh, through the airwaves. So the, so the hubs, like Mexico City Airport, but JFK, Heathrow, and so on, become the super spreaders of these bads of globalization as well as the goods. And this, this is exactly what happened in finance as well, with these banks becoming the super spreaders uh, of systemic risk. And the question we're grappling with is how do you have a hyper-connected world of openness, uh, of people movement, uh, without also becoming more and more vulnerable uh, to the bads that travel down these transmission mechanisms? And of course, there are ways of doing that. Um, our pandemics group in the Oxford Martin School uh, estimates that anything will be everywhere within 48 hours now of origin. So we are all absolutely connected uh, in the world. And um, it becomes extremely important to be able to identify at source and isolate and control uh, the movement uh, of potential pandemics or biopathogens. And so uh, getting global coordination effective is extremely important in this area. Uh, many people, and I would be among them, see this as the biggest risk to, to all of us, uh, the spread of pandemics. And it's the underbelly of globalization. Now, in a sense, um, that is not new. You know, the estimates that half the British population died in the Great Plague, uh, which some people think arose because a rat came off a ship coming into Liverpool. So that's sort of early globalization uh, spreading a pandemic. But it was very slow. We're not sure about it. Um, and we don't know much about it. And the same is true of the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, up to, it's estimated up to 50 million people might have died in the Spanish flu. But there was, um, there was a lack of knowledge. In fact, it's called the Spanish flu because Spain was the only country that allowed publication of information on it. But it was much more virulent elsewhere. Um, so the problem now is not only what actually happens, but the instantaneous knowledge of it and the herding and panic and all the things that go with that, uh, which lead to much more complicated management. Allied to the pandemic issue, is the question of antibiotic resistance, uh, which I also talk a little bit about. Now, antibiotic resistance is an interesting example of the tension between individual rationality and collective rationality. Uh, economists and political scientists have worked for many, many years on this issue of the global commons, the tragedy of the commons. Here in Oxford, 700 years ago, um, people used to put their cattle or goats and things 
on Port Meadow and other places. And when it was a poor society with few people that worked, and as Oxford got richer uh, and as people had more uh, livestock, um, the commons could no longer support the community, and that ended as a viable source of sustenance for Oxford. The same is true at the global level. Uh, we all fish in our little rivers, um, and it's great, but if too many of us do it too often, uh, that's the end of the fisheries of that river. So we know these things. Um, the problem is when there's 7 billion of us and we're all going up the income curve, moving because of our success uh, from very low levels of income to much higher ones, the pressure on the planet grows exponentially. And at about $4,000 to $8,000 per capita, which is where about 2.5 billion people will be transitioning over the next 15 years, you maximize your demand on all planetary resources, on water, on air, on land, on food, and so on. And when this is allied, as it has, in a wonderful process with greater choice and democracy, 84 countries have become democratic over the last 25 years. People have more and more freedom to decide what they want. And of course they want antibiotics. They want antibiotics for themselves and for their children, and they use more and more, and they can afford more and more. Not only do they want antibiotics, the livestock producers and others want antibiotics. Well over half of antibiotics are now used in non-human applications. Livestock, they've even been painted on the hulls of ships to stop barnacles growing. Um, the problem is that there's more and more resistance. And so it's not only that the risk of pandemic is growing, uh, but the, our ability to cope because our tools are becoming diluted is weakening. Uh, and this is another problem of collective action. It re requires rules and regulations. It requires a, this tension between individual choice and high incomes and publicly good outcomes be managed. You might have seen that a, a tuna, a single tuna, was auctioned uh, in Tokyo this year for $1.8 million dollars. Uh, that's uh, about $10,000 for a plate of sushi. Um, when people get very rich and get richer, their potential to choose and to exercise choice just grows extremely rapidly. And of course, the, the poor old tuna, like the rhinoceros and so many other creatures, don't know how much they're worth. Uh, economists call it inelastic supply. Uh, so... Um, more and more high-tech equipment going after the same or diminishing stocks leads to extinction. So this tension needs to be resolved, and it's an example in pandemic, and it requires regulation, not only at the national level, but because these are global, tuna are global, antibiotic issues are global, pandemics are global, it requires global coordination as well. Climate change is obviously an allied um, area. Uh, it's, again, very rational for everyone to climb up the energy curve. Uh, we've done it. That's why we're here with these lights on. Um, but we've done it over a very long period of time since the Industrial Revolution, which is why we are so advanced as a society. We've put the carbon up there. Uh, the problem is that the rest of the world wants to have their turn, too to go up the energy ladder. And uh, it is both ethically, politically, and economically necessary that that happens. So this creates an enormous pressure. Uh, if any of you don't believe in climate change, uh, I encourage you to intellectually wrestle with everyone I've met in the scientific community in Oxford. Uh, I have not met a physicist or climate specialist in Oxford who does not believe it's happening. Um, of course, we don't know about the implications. We don't know where, what, how it will play through, uh, although a lot will be revealed in the next week by the IPCC. And a number of the team leaders uh, from the Oxford Martin School, Miles Allen, uh, Tim, Palmer, who, Tim Palmer, who leads our climate change uh, modeling group, and uh, Miles Allen, who leads our resource stewardship group, 
are very, very central. Um, and you'll see them a lot in the media in the next week to, to what's coming out of that. But this is a big problem of coordination because in the end, it's going to require global rules. And I'll come back to, to how I think this can be resolved. Migration is a very interesting area because um, while everything has become more globalized over the last 25 years, uh, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, 24 years really, uh, the movement of people, with some notable exceptions, uh, has not uh, increased. In fact, as a share of the global population, uh, migration is lower now than it was um, in previous epochs. Of course, until about this First World War, uh, there was virtually free movement of people. Uh, passports are only about 100 years old as a concept. Um, as we know them today. Uh, and there's some great books, which I cite in my book on um, migration novels written about when people first encounter border controls. There's sort of shock and horror uh, as to what was happening. Um, so uh, it's a new, and with increasing technology, uh, uh, a very rapidly rising set of walls that societies are creating around themselves. Uh, but more importantly, there are many more countries. There's about 100 more countries now than there were 100 years ago. So, of course, if, if by migration I mean international migration or cross-border migration, by definition, the more countries are, uh, in a sense, the more migrants you have, uh, but also the more barriers you have. Uh, the European Union is the only really formidable global experiment in the removal uh, of boundaries in the 20th century and 21st century. And a very interesting one. Uh, because when we look at the evidence, for example, on how many Greeks or Spaniards there are in the UK, um, with 60% unemployment of youth there, the answer is tiny. So there's a lot of, lot of myths around migration. And um, <laughs> if you're interested in that, I encourage you to look at my book where I talk about that, and we can talk about it in Q&A. But the issue on migration that's of concern in my book, Divided Nations, is this global coordination one. Um, it is the orphan of the international system. There's no international organization for migration. So even what we mean by migration, definitions, uh, don't exist. There's no common concept of what you mean by a migrant. Even some countries include tourists, some include education, people coming for university, some others don't. Some say if you come for less than uh, a certain period of time, you're not a migrant. Others have different definitions. And there's also no simple rules. Simple rules like pension portability for example, allowing people to carry pensions from one country to another, to allowing skilled workers to migrate and go home. And there's many, many reasons why some sort of international rules around this would be beneficial, not only for the migrants themselves, but also for the countries that try and manage the system. It's an orphan for good reason, and that's because the big countries like to basically set their own rules. And this is true of all the global failures. And then the final issue I discuss is cybersecurity. Um, cyber is, is even more than migration, uh, a totally unmanaged system. It's anarchic. Uh, there are rules on names, but there's very little else. And there's no jurisdiction. So if someone from Russia uh, steals your identity, there's nothing you can do about it. If they steal your money, uh, good luck to you. Um, and um, this is a, a very, very uh, rapidly rising threat to the nature of integration of our societies. It has become, the cyber systems have become the nervous system of the global economy, uh, of global commerce, and our social and political activities. Uh, my, my former colleague, Jonathan Zittrain, uh, has written a book called The End of the Internet. Uh, and his view is that we will not have an internet uh, in the future. I think that uh, is a little bit extreme, um, but uh, there is a real risk uh, that there will be uh, no longer an open system, that it will become trusted networks and a very different sort of system. So how does one manage this? Well, this new group that um, the government has just uh, funded in the Oxford Mountain School uh, has that purpose. Professor Sadie Kreese 
the new professor of cybersecurity at Oxford, um, is going to be leading it, and we're just in the startup phase. By the way, we're just refurbishing our building, which is on the east end of Broad Street, the old Indian Institute. For those of you that might have done history here, the old history building. Uh, and I think when some of you might have been here in the 70s, the old administration building of the university, which still has some tar speckles outside it uh, from where people speckled um, protest tar, I suppose, or paint. Um, anyway, that's the core of the, of the Oxford Martin School building. We have about 70 people out of our 350 in the building, and the cyber group will be in that building as well. Um, so how do we set up rules? How do we uh, develop a system which uh, is accountable, where there's a shared interest, where we overcome the secrecy of the current system? Businesses don't like revealing how much has been stolen, how, how vulnerable they are. So there's very little communication, even between businesses. There's very little, much of what happens with government is in the secret world. So how do we overcome that and share some of this information? And then at the higher level, how do we ensure there's shared interests? Although there's great suspicion that some countries are attacking other countries, say China's attacking the US or the US is attacking China, whatever. Um, in the end, all countries have an interest in a system which is robust and reliable because they, too, are becoming more and more interdependent. So those are the five issues I focus on. What do I say? Well, I talk about the reasons why um, these systems are not working, why global governance, and it's not only these. The World Trade Organization discussions have ground to a halt. Every global discussion has ground to a halt. We see what's happening in the Security Council on Syria, uh, and there are many other examples. And I partly ascribe this to the rise of the individual, individual power, ideologies of the individual, the market, believing that choice of individuals is paramount. And I subscribed it to greater perceptions of risk. The irony of globalization is that although it has been the best, best producer of good news in the world, it also makes people feel more vulnerable. And we see this in the UK. We see this in the rise of UKIP, which has 24% of the vote in the recent elections. In the UK, in England, and UK wanting to pull out of Europe, Scotland at referendum on pulling out of the UK. The tendency in politics, despite this hyper-globalization in the real economy and in people's lives, is actually withdrawal towards more and more local and nationalist. And this tension between a more and more integrated system in whatever you look at and the problems requiring integrated solutions and the politics becoming shorter term and more local is very much at the core. And I, subscribe, I, I, I ascribe that to a number of factors. One is this ideology of choice and income. In other words, we feel better and we feel more empowered and we want more control of our lives, and that's a good thing. Um, that's why we... We fight for many of our rights, but it leads to the belief that somehow the individual is king uh, and we want uh, to, to give up less and less sovereignty. So at a time when sovereignty means less and less, uh, we actually want it, uh, in a sense, more and more. Um, the challenge is that all the key drivers of change, anything that I can think about that will really shape the future of England or any country in the world will come from global events. Uh, and the political reaction, which is to withdraw and to be local, I think reflects people's worry that they are out of control. Uh, that the financial crisis came from over there. It was a shock that we did not understand. Uh, that pandemics come from over there. That cyber attacks come from over there that terrorists come from over there, that all the bad things come from over there. Um, and so let's just cut ourselves off. Let's build higher walls and stop these bad things happening. And also, the politicians that we don't trust, they also over want to go over there. We want to look at them in the eyeballs. We want them local, accountable, and the closer they are, the more we can hold them accountable. The more we know what they're doing. Uh, they're not on junkets. They're working for us. And I think this is a very natural uh, an understandable tendency and one that I certainly share. The problem is that it's counterproductive because actually the problems do come from over there 
And the only way to stop them coming from over there is to get your hands on them and to try and manage them, uh, to be engaged with them. And withdrawing from them is not going to protect you uh, from that. And so the question is, how do you engage without feeling unaccountable, without feeling you're losing control? And I think that's where new technologies like webcams in the European Parliament could help us. We'll see when our MEPs are sleeping. Uh, so is global governance the answer? And let me just conclude with some thoughts on this, and then uh, we'll have a discussion. The problem, I think, is also that uh, the system has become too unwieldy. It's very difficult to imagine 202 countries agreeing to anything. Um, after the Second World War, uh, and you remember some of these beautiful old sepia photographs of these boardroom tables, effectively, with about 20 men, and they were all men, smoking their cigars, solving the world's problems. That's how the world used to run. It's also how the banking system used to run. Um, small groups of men basically sewing up deals, uh, and everyone obeyed because they had all the power, the money, etc. Well, the world isn't like that anymore. Uh, now in a negotiation, you not only have 202 people, you have about 40,000 NGOs, and everything, of course, is instant instantaneously blogged, twittered, and everything, and you have the whole world weighing in as to its views, and you walk out of the negotiating room, and everyone wants to know exactly what you said, uh, and there's no hiding uh, from what you said. So you can't strike secret deals anymore uh, in that way. Uh, and you, of course, because the world is much more democratic, uh, you uh, at, at threat. Uh, we'll see what happens to Angela Merkel uh, in the election. But she could well be one of two um, members of the whole of Europe, 27 countries, that has kept her seat since the financial crisis. People don't like crises, and politicians don't like them either. Uh, and so there is an increasing short-termism. There's an increasing inability uh, in politics to sew up, make deals, and there's also a, a real demand from the population to respond to very immediate short-term things. In this context, because we are so worried about it, we've started something called the Oxford Martin Commission for Future Generations, which Pascal Lamy, the former head of the World Trade Organization, he just stepped down at the end of August, uh, is leading and has a lot of great people, including the chancellor of this university, Lord Patton, as a commissioner, uh, Amartya Sen, Nick Stern, and a lot of former uh, leaders, uh, or to-be leaders. Michelle Bachelet, who I think is about to become the president of Chile, uh, is another member of this group. But the question is, how do you overcome short-termism? All of these people have a lot of scars on their back, and they're various solutions, and I touch on these in the book. I think we have to get away from the concept that all, I, all solutions need to be global. This concept of coalitions of the willing uh, was done a terrible disservice uh, by the US. But actually, like-minded people affecting change, uh, I believe, is the way to go. Uh, not waiting for the slowest movers or those that are not prepared to move. But one needs a test of legitimacy so there are five principles that I lay out uh, in the book uh, regarding how to resolve things. And I think all of these issues that I've discussed and the others could be resolved by thinking about these principles. The first is that the principle of subsidiarity really should apply. Global issues should only be solved when absolutely necessary by the global community. Most things can actually be solved locally. Some, they're nationally, and many regionally, and many by groups or subgroups of countries that are necessary to resolve that issue. Climate change, for example, is not an issue which requires everyone to agree on. Ten countries produce 85 to 90 percent of global carbon emissions. Uh, if I include the European Union as one country. Um, let, let's split it up and say 13 countries produce 90% of global carbon emissions. Uh, why do you need 202 countries? 
to agree? What does it matter if most countries don't agree? Now, that means you do need China, you do need the US, you do need most of the European Union, and you need a few others. But that's really all you need. In fact, all you really need is China and the US to agree something. Um, because the rest are likely to agree. How do you test whether this is legitimate? Well, I think you also need some of those affected as well as affecting uh, to agree. And this is, to me, the real test. So I would be very comfortable with a global agreement, for example, that was basically the US, China, Europe, Bangladesh, and the Maldives. Uh, because I know that Bangladesh is probably the country that's going to be most affected by, for example, ocean rise. Uh, I think that would pass the test of legitimacy. Um, it would certainly go a long way. And of course, China is in, a, uh, is in a very different situation to the US because it, although it's the largest now emitter of the flows of carbon, it is also the country that's probably most vulnerable from climate change for all sorts of reasons. So it's on both sides of that particular table. So small groups, and even within those, I don't think one needs to try and put all issues on the table. And one of the problems with global negotiations is the complexity and the number of issues which are loaded onto this. And we see this in trade, and we see it in climate negotiations and many others. So can one take away, can one separate, for example, a conversation regarding how much you emit from, for example, the other big conversation which is happening, which is how much the rich countries transfer to developing countries to reduce their emissions in the future. Can those things be separated? Would one have a separate negotiation in parallel? And that those are the sorts of things one can do. On pandemics, I think it is absolutely essential, in contrast to finance, I mean, in contrast to climate change, where you actually need a, hand, a dozen countries to agree something. In pandemics, you actually do need the capacity to be everywhere in the world. A pandemic could come from the poorest country. It could come from anywhere. And so there you do need all countries to say they agree. And they all have a mutual interest. Clearly, no country wants its people to be killed. But they don't all have capacity. And there I would establish global SWAT teams, global teams in all the different regions which have the capacity to get to places and have surveillance in new forms. All our mobile phones have the capacity that we, we're just working on this now in Oxford, and this is again an area where the Oxford Martin School, I think, could contribute, to become biosensors. We could know about pandemic, outbreak. everyone in the world now has a mobile phone, virtually there are more mobile phones than there are people in the world. Um, if these could be linked up to a biopathogen network, you would know very quickly what's happening where. But the key would be transparency. In the swine flu, no, sorry, in SARS, Indonesia, for example, refused to allow the WHO in. Um, and the reason was because they would not get the results of the analysis immediately, and they were worried that others would have the information first, stockpile Tamiflu, and they would come late to the table. So getting people in and transparency uh, on open platforms would be crucial uh, for that. So to me, this is absolutely crucial. The speed of identification and of dealing uh, with pandemic. And then obviously this issue of antibiotic drug resistance has to be dealt with by global legislation, at least in the big countries. It doesn't really matter um, if it's not done in, say, Mali, but it does matter if it's not done in China. Uh, or in other big societies. So um, I think there really has to be a very concerted effort, including consumer pressure, not to apply antibiotics as, uh, as paint on the hulls of ships. And I think we need to withdraw them from everything in the food chain except human consumption as a start. Uh, and then there needs to be, in many societies, there's over-the-counter purchasing uh, of antibiotics, and that needs to end. So. There has to be radical action on that. And there has been in the past, in tobacco, for example, in other areas, there have been major advances. So we can, the Global Society can do these things. Um, on finance, my view is that we need 
very, very radical action uh, in terms of coordination. All the, all the regulatory processes that are currently happening are on national. The banks don't, and capital does not know national borders. Uh, so there needs to be a much more joined up system. The firepower given to institutions like the IMF needs to be increased. I've just come this week, uh, I arrived this morning, <coughs> I was at the IMF retreat on the future, I led the discussion on the future of the global financial system and the future of the IMF. A fascinating discussion with the top management and board of the IMF. But this is, a, this is basically a fire brigade of the global financial system. Uh, its mandate needs to be changed to allow it to do that and it needs the capacity and it needs to radically rechange its skill set in order to do that. But we need to understand complexity. We need to understand the nodes in the, and networks. And one of the, the, the challenges in data is, and as I mentioned in finance, there's as much data as one wants, is to interpret the significance of different things. And there's great work that Andy Haldane at the Bank of England has been doing. He's the uh, executive director of financial stability at the Bank of England on financial robustness. And he's written a paper called The Dog That Caught the Frisbee that I, if you're interested in these matters, um, I encourage you uh, to look at. And what he's basically addressing is how do you address, how do you stop problems arising out of growing complexity? And that's part of the problem is more and more complexity and more and more difficult to understand what's going on and attribution, cause and effect, becomes more and more difficult to discern. And what Andy says in this paper, and we've worked together uh, on this, is you can't fight complexity with complexity. You have to fight it with simplicity. Uh, and the dog that caught the frisbee comes from the fact that when you throw your ball or you throw your frisbee, uh, the dog always catches it, but it doesn't understand gravity uh, or physics or anything else. Uh, it does it because it applies a very simple rule, which is always keeping its head at the same angle uh, as it runs to catch the ball um, and keeping its eyes on the ball. So uh, that um, metaphor is about using simple rules uh, and intuition. And we, if we had used these in the financial crisis, we would have been absolutely fine prior to it. I was in Washington at the time, and I remember talking to the person um, who operates uh, the, the security guys that, 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 uh, in the World Bank uh, about their second home and third home purchases. So one should have suspected there was a problem. Um, but no one did, or if they did, it was politically impossible. No one wanted to take away the punch bowl while the party was roaring, least of all the politicians or the president. Um, so applying intuition, ethics, rules, gut feeling uh, in one's responses is more and more important. The feel for things, understanding uh, judgment and the role of judgment, and particularly the role of ethics in this, making calls on which are precautionary, becomes more and more important the more complex the system becomes. And how do you teach that, and how do we teach that to students is vital. But bringing multidisciplinary perspectives in, bringing judgment in. Uh, in finance, none of the rules now being uh, advanced in the Basel discussions, which are the, the discussions which are now setting the capital uh, base of banks, would have stopped the last financial crisis. The other question is, where's the financial crisis going to come from? My view is that uh, we need to worry increasingly about second-order impact. In other words, is it going to come from finance or something else? Well, we almost saw in Hurricane Sandy where it could come from. It didn't quite envelop uh, Wall Street, but it got very close. Um, so what I'm thinking about is, uh, let's imagine a pandemic in Canary Wharf or the city or Wall Street. What happens next? Um, and uh, I actually think there's a higher probability that sort of instability will lead not from finance, but second order into finance. And finance is the transmitter of risk, but it doesn't have to be the origin of risk. Uh, so geography matters a lot in a hyper-globalized and hyper-connected world. Nodes and networks, complexity, mapping, 
competition policy to encourage businesses not to all co-locate. I don't mind, and this is an interesting discussion I've been having with my colleague John Vickers, and you'll know about the Vickers report um, into the structure of the banking system. Does it matter that there are five banks, none of which individually might be too big to fail, if they're all co-located on the same street? and all their data and information and people are in the same place if a pandemic comes uh, or a cyber attack or a terrorist attack or something else. So thinking about geography and its implications for competition policy at the national and global level and networks and structure is very important. Uh, finally, uh, migration and cyber. On migration, I push for rules, uh, for uh, simple rules, for basic agreement around definition and also for progressive uh, opening up, and this is a whole big debate that we don't have time to go into now, which is obviously a very hot issue, but uh, it, it's one that my most recent book was about. I feel passionately about the power uh, of, and I'm certainly not naive enough to believe in open borders, but I believe that managing migration is the big, big neglected issue. And cyber just needs to get started. Cyber needs simple rules. Cyber needs uh, common uh, frameworks, it needs legal structures, it needs international jurisprudence, it needs many, many things, uh, but they have to get started. And, and those that believe that any discussion on rules around cyber is an infringement of civil liberties are, uh, I'm afraid, allowing cyber to go down a very slippery road towards collapse. There has to be participation of civil society in rules which will bring stability to the system. This brings up a big issue of trust. Who has the information? Who controls it? Is it governments? Is it businesses? Is it civil society or some combination? That's crucial. Uh, and I believe that we'd be very part, much part of this. The different actors have to be in the room. So this is a quick uh, Cook's tour of my book. And uh, I hope it stimulated you enough. I will be um, selling copies, signing copies outside uh, afterwards. But it's not about the book. It's really about this issue. I hope you get engaged with it. I hope you feel stimulated to think about this. Uh, because I believe that unless we do engage more on this topic, uh, we're likely to see an increasingly unstable world. A world where we are overwhelmed by crises, uh, where shocks happen and our preparedness psychologically and institutionally for them is weakened, that in the process we withdraw more and more and we go into this downward spiral of disconnecting as a nation uh, and as individuals from the big challenges of our time. That would be a disaster for us, it would be a disaster for future generations um, and the planet, and it would be extremely counterproductive. I don't believe that the judgment is at all settled on this. I believe we're at a crossroads. Uh, this, and this was very much the language that James Martin used. Uh, James tragically died in June, uh, but was absolutely inspiring in the way he talked about this. And he believed that humanity's at the crossroads, that this could either be our best century ever because of our ability to lead longer, healthier lives, uh, include more and more citizens in the world, in progress, uh, or it could be our worst, because um, through our actions, advertently and inadvertently, we're creating a whole lot of conditions uh, which could destroy our future and our planet. And the choice is, is really ours. Thank you.